I'd also like to read from the Bible this morning, um, the passage that Pastor Paul will be preaching on from Galatians 2, verses 15 to 21, and it's in your bulletin right here, and I'll just read from it. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might, li might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kathy. Um, just a couple things. First of all, uh, often after the, the sermon, after the message, there's a short time for any Q&A that uh, people might want to participate in. Like if you have a question that you want to ask for clarification or something, uh, you can feel free to either raise your hand or you'll see in the bulletin uh, my phone number. You can text anonymously a question if you're not the kind of person who likes to put their hand up. Um, the number's in there. I figure I'd tell you now so that you can start going during the sermon rather than wait till the end. Uh, the other thing I just want to make note of is um, if, if I seem a little emotional at times this morning uh, when I'm preaching, uh, it, it does have to do with uh, Blue and Callie uh, and the fact that they're going home soon, uh, which in many ways is a great story, but that's hard for us and for our family. And the, I was fine, like when I got up this morning, but then I'm less fine now. So just uh, lay off, okay? Um, okay, so here we go. We're in the middle of a, a series on Galatians, uh, and uh, we're sort of walking our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians, which, as I see, say each week, is a group of churches in a certain part of uh, Asia Minor, what's basically known today as Turkey. These are churches that the Apostle Paul uh, planted and founded, brought the gospel, not of Jewish ethnic background, but of Gentile ethnic background, Greek ethnic, Roman ethnic background. And there was a controversy that had been stirred up by uh, some people who had come from Jerusalem who were saying that the Apostle Paul's message, that you are saved entirely by faith, by the grace of God through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son, that that message was actually incomplete and that there was more to the good news than what the Apostle Paul was saying. That more was that you also had to adopt the Old Testament mosaic purity, clean laws, and circumcision laws in order to be a believer. And of course, 
the Apostle Paul was arguing against that in this letter, and he, he said it's a very powerful argument that they make, and, it's, and, it, and it has almost sort of this peer pressure component to it, such that even the Apostle Peter, when he came to visit the Christians in Galatia, uh, he started removing himself from the, the Gentile believers and was hanging out only with the Jewish believers because he was of Jewish background as well. And Paul said, that is hypocrisy. Believing one thing, but behaving another way. So saying one thing, doing another thing. Now, we talked about hypocrisy last week, and we looked at that, uh, this passage that deals with hypocrisy last week. And, and one of the things we had to confess is that, first of all, it is a huge problem for non-Christians, for people who aren't Christians, to, when they come into contact with Christians, one of the things they tend to encounter is hypocrisy. And that turns them off to the message of Christianity, and it's largely our fault because Christians can fall into hypocrisy and can actually participate in hypocrisy, and we need to be called out on that. Whether we're called out on it by the Apostle Paul in one of the pages of Scripture or we're called out out on it by a secular friend, it, it doesn't really matter. We need to be called out on it. We need to live the gospel, not just say we believe the gospel. We need to give evidence of our belief in the gospel. And that's one of the big reasons why it's our fault. But there's another big reason why it's our fault, and it's this. Christians have not done a great job of actually explaining the gospel to non-Christians. We haven't done a good job of outlining what it is. So what we've done, you know, remember I said that, uh, well, let me say this, first of all. We've... We've become very, the modern church has become very involved in some very important things in the world. So at the front lines of the social justice movement, you will find the church. At the front lines, and this has always been the case, at the front lines of addressing poverty, you will find the church. But somewhere along the way, we have started to sort of equate dealing with social justice issues or alleviating poverty with the gospel. Or maybe we've equated the gospel with sort of a philosophy of life or kind of an an ethical teaching, a way of living your lives. And that has confused the secular world. They're not exactly sure what it means to be a Christian, what it means to believe the gospel because we have muddied the waters and not explained things very, very well to them. Now, remember I said way at the beginning of this series, I said the Apostle Paul, throughout the book of Galatians, he explains the gospel in a bunch of different ways. So back in chapter 1, he kind of summarized it with this word, rescue, right? Well, in our text this morning, Paul again summarizes the gospel, but he uses a different word. This time, he uses the word justification, big theological term justification. It's right there in verses 15 through 17. I think he says it three or four times there uh, when he talks about uh, the gospel. He says this, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified 
by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law no one will be justified if while we seek to be justified, 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 justified. What's all this all about? John Calvin, who was a scholar in the 1500s, said that this doctrine of justification, he said it is the hinge on which all true religion turns. So it's obviously very, very important. Justification is the hinge on which all true religion turns. And now notice that he said on which all true religion turns. He didn't say religions because he's speaking specifically about the Christian religion. And this doctrine of justification is absolutely unique to Christianity. You will not find this teaching in any or actually in any sects or cults or little minor religions out there, this is utterly unique. And it's not just the hinge on which your intellectual religion turns, meaning how you understand it in your head. It's actually the hinge on which your emotional religion turns to, meaning this. If you are struggling with your relationship to God right now, if you're in a situation where you're mad at God, let's say, maybe he hasn't given you what you want or he hasn't done what you expected in your life and you're kind of ticked. Or if you are feeling really distant from God, you, you don't feel much, you're not experiencing his presence in your life or, or something like that. Or, or maybe you're just questioning whether he's there at all. You're not remembering your justification. You're not remembering that you're justified and, and you're not thinking through the implications of what in the world that means. And so, it's not just the hinge of your... It's, what I'm saying is, is, justification is not just the hinge on which all true religion turns. It's the hinge, if you're a Christian here this morning, it's the hinge on which your religion turns. Whether you know it or not, it's the thing. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to understand it, I hope. <laughs> so we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at the definition of justification, the need for justification, the means of justification, and the motivation for justification. And there are, there's a little outline uh, in, the, in the bulletin if you want to follow along there. So here we go. First of all, Definition of justification. What, is, what does it mean to justify something? What does justification mean? Let's say you and I were in a debate. And I said to you, you know what? I think that Donald Trump is the best president the U.S. has ever had. And you looked at me, no chuckles, huh? Okay. I thought at least James would chuckle at that. But uh, um, let, let me, let's say, I say and you, you heard me say that, and you looked at me, and you, you did that sort of half-eye squint and said, this guy's got a screw loose, me. Uh, you would look at me, and you would say, I don't buy that. I think you're nuts. I cannot accept what you have just said to me. Your proposition is crazy, is wrong, is whatever. You need to justify that statement to me. You need to change my relationship with that statement so that I can accept it rather than reject it because right now I'm going to reject it. Or, or an action, okay? Think about it in terms of an action. You, you justify the things that you do. You need to, you need to change the... Here's an example, okay? 
I, heard, I read a story once of, uh, in a high school in Brooklyn or somewhere, uh, in a cafeteria, the principal, this is an interview that a principal gave, and uh, he was telling the story of how he was in the high school, or the cafeteria of the high school, and he looked across the room, and he saw a bunch of boys milling around, and all of a sudden, he saw one of the boys just haul off and just hammer one of the other kids, knocked him out cold, just complete cold cock, right? Okay, looked like a cheap shot. Ran over there, grabbed this kid, said, I saw what you did. I know what you did. There's no excuse for it. You're out of here, buddy. You're going to get expelled. And the kid said, would you please look in that guy's pocket? And he looked in the kid's pocket, and the kid had a gun in his pocket. He was about to draw a gun, and that's why the other kid punched him. Well, what did this kid do? He justified his actions, right? He, 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 he explained sort of what he, what he was doing. And so justification is a change of relationship with something from a negative to a positive, okay? From non-acceptance to acceptance, you understand? That's what justification is. All right, that's point one. Point two, so what? <laughs> Why does this matter? Why is this so important to the Apostle Paul that he keeps hammering on it and bringing it out over and over and over again? Here's why. Because we all desperately need justification. Human beings desperately need justification. This is not just an issue for religious people or even Christian people. This is an issue for human people. Yeah, human people. It's an issue for all of us. We all wrestle with justification. Here's a little girl, and she pulls her brother's hair. And mom comes running over, her dad comes running over, what are you doing? And she says, well, he stole my toy. Trying to justify my behavior, right? Or here's a teenager, comes home and slaps the speeding ticket on the table and says, I got a speeding ticket. And dad flips out and goes, you know what this is going to do to your insurance? What do you mean you got a speeding ticket? How in the world could you let this happen? And say, look, I was driving. You know where I was? I was in that section of the road. And you know how the, the, the you, know, you know this happens, right? There's that, that one spot where all of a sudden the speed limit drops and you think, that's ridiculous. The road hasn't changed at all, but the, the cop doesn't care. Boom, he nails you. And so he justifies why he got a ticket. Well, those are small examples, those are minor examples, but here's a man, and this man commits adultery, and he cheats on his wife, and he says, well, you know, I, she's so cold, if you were married to her, she's so cold, she's so harsh, she's, she doesn't show any affection toward me at all, what else was I supposed to do? Now, human beings are constantly trying to justify themselves. Trying to say what? I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. Why? It's because human beings, we all need to believe deep down in our soul that we are a good person, that we are good people, that I'm not a bad person, that I'm not a guilty person. You know, I talk to people who maybe aren't necessarily all that religious and certainly not Christian, and I might ask them, you know, do you believe that there's an afterlife? And very often they do. And I say, well, well what if, was there a, is there a judgment? Is there a reckoning? And they might say, yes, there is a reckoning. There is a judgment. I said, okay, so if you stood before God and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven? 
what would you answer? And I'll tell you, the almost every single, I would say I've tried to live a good employees or employer or whatever. I've tried to help my community, etc. I've, I've been a pretty good person. And, you know, psychologists, they study this kind of stuff all the time, right? And there's this, there's this thing called the illusory of superiority. Psychologists have discovered this. Through studies, what they've discovered is, is that human beings generally think that they are above average. So 70% of people believe that they're above average. Yeah, that doesn't work, right? So, for example... Um, most people think that they're, they're a better driver than the average person, right? Or that they have maybe a little higher IQ, their intelligence is maybe a little bit above average. But psychologists have found in their studies that the number one area that people believe that they are superior to other people in is morality. Morality. When taking you know, submitting to polls and surveys and stuff like that, when it comes to morality, the vast majority of people think that they are generally above average or better than others. Why? Why, are we, why do we need... We cannot, friends, we cannot live with the thought that we are bad people, that we are guilty, that we are condemned. And we cannot escape this sense that we are even if we don't believe in a God or an afterlife or anything like that. You don't need that to believe that you're guilty. Great writer from the last century by the name of Franz Kafka. He was a Russian. Uh, no, he was German. Sorry. Maybe Austrian. All right, don't, I don't know where he was. But I know his name, Franz Kafka. And he wrote a story called The Trial. Some of you may have heard of it. And it's about a character named Joseph K. who gets arrested and he's never told what he's arrested for, what he's accused for. And the whole story, it, I mean, it's long, and I'll be honest, a little bit boring, but it, the premise is pretty amazing. Uh, through the whole story, he goes before judges for hearings. He uh, is sitting in his cell with other, um, other inmates. He is uh, being paraded around by guards, and nobody will tell him what he's done wrong. Nobody. And of course, so finally, he starts kind of going a little crazy over this, and he starts going over his life. Well, was it, I did I did that? I did that? I did that? Is that what I'm here for? Am I accused? Because I did that, I'm accused? And he goes on and on and on until finally, in the end of the story, he gets stabbed to death and he never finds out why he was arrested in the first place. Kind of a weird story. In one of his journals, Franz Kafka actually explains the story of the trial. And, here's, and basically what he says is this. We in the modern world, we have gotten rid of God and we've, therefore, we've gotten rid of the concept of sin, but we haven't gotten rid of guilt. We can't get rid of this sense of guilt. We can't escape this sense that we are culpable, that we are responsible, and therefore, we are condemnable. And so what do we do is we look for ways to justify ourselves, ways to convince ourselves that we are a good person. And the way we mostly do it is through what you could call the kind of inside-out approach. We look inside ourselves, and we look at our record, and we look at our accomplishments, and we look at our achievements, and we, we present that as evidence of our goodness. 
Remember I said just a minute ago, you have someone who comes before God and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? And they said, well, I tried to be good. I tried to keep the law or I tried to keep the rules or I tried to take care of people, whatever. In our, in our passage, Paul is dealing with people who are justifying themselves by keeping this Old Testament law. That to many of us just seems strange as you read it and kind of weird, but that was their means of trying to convince themselves that they were acceptable to God. It doesn't matter what your law is. Maybe your law is, I have an elderly neighbor and I always shovel her driveway when it snows and I always mow her lawn in the summertime and I always weed her garden and take good care of her. Or maybe your law is, I am not a judgmental person. I live and let live. I don't try to tell other people how they should behave. I am open-minded. We are done in order to convince ourselves that we are still a good person. The problem is, it's just never, ever, ever enough. In verse 16, it's been a while since I quoted the Bible, I should do that, eh? In verse 16, Paul says this. He says, We too, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by observing the law. Why? Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Again, it does not matter what your law is. If you're here thinking to yourself, I'm just true to myself. You're not true to yourself. Who here is all they ever dreamed that they would be? Have you accomplished all your goals? Have you fulfilled all your dreams? Have you kept every single one of your own laws for yourself? Of course not. It's never, ever, ever enough. You cannot pull it off. Now, I... The simplest way, I've used it before, imagine if somebody came up to you and said to you on a street, a total stranger said to you in all seriousness, looking deep in, the, in your eyes, they said to you, I know what you did, and I'm going to tell everybody. What would you do? You'd put a hit out on them, wouldn't you? Come on. Because you, you know there's stuff in there that has not measured up, that for which you are culpable, for which you are responsible. It's just there. And the Apostle Paul is pointing this out for us. But he says it doesn't have to be that way. This is point number three. There's another way. You can be justified by your works of the law and continue on that hamster wheel trying to convince yourself that you're okay, or you could be justified by faith in Christ. And this is where you see this utter uniqueness of this gospel approach to life. There is nothing like it. Remember, justification is a change in status. It's a change in relationship. It's a change in how you're regarded. So when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, when you have faith in Him that He lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died, that means that you become justified. There is a change of status. Understand something. It's not a change that happens inside you. It's a change of status. It's a change of relationship. It's a change in how God sees you. It's not like when you become 
a Christian and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, oh, I used to lie, now I never lie. Or I used to be a violent person with a bad temper, now I'm never violent and I never have a bad temper. That change is something that happens slowly over time, but that's not the change of justification. The change of justification is that now this person who has a bad temper or was a liar or was lustful is not regarded as someone who has a bad temper or was a liar or was lustful. Here's why. It's because you're putting your faith in someone who did live the life that you should have lived. You can't nail Jesus for anything. He was totally perfect. He was perfectly obedient to his father. He was perfectly loving. He could say stuff like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you and I say, oh man, that's really hard to do. And Jesus, while he's hanging on the cross and people are killing him, He still says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He fulfilled the law perfectly. We should be good. We know that. And yet Jesus was good on our behalf. When you're justified, it means that when God looks at you, He doesn't see all the stuff you did, and He doesn't see all the sinful tendencies you have. What he sees is the perfect obedience of his son. And he changes his regard for you from negative, that is, condemned, to positive, that is, loved and cherished beyond your wildest dreams. Let me me illustrate this with a great scene from a TV show I hardly ever see. NCIS, some of you have watched that TV show. I think it's still on. Anyhow, uh, it's all about military police and lawyers and stuff like that. Anyhow, there's a, an episode where this man, this old man, is charged with murder. And he had been in the military for many, many years. And the scene is he's sitting in this chair, and the people who are going to come and arrest him for uh, murder, they walk in, and the lead, so it's two MPs, you know, big brawny guys in, uh, in, in fatigues and stuff, and then this woman in her uniform, and she is sort of the lead investigator, and she comes up, and she's sort of harsh with him and browbeating him, and you're going to get in trouble and all that kind of stuff, and he stands up, and the people he's with, they just pull his jacket back, and he's got a Congressional Medal of Honor on his chest, and that is the, by the way, the highest, the, excuse me, the highest uh, medal for military service that you can receive in the United States, and it's very rare to receive one. And so he receives one, and, he, and the jacket gets pulled back, and the MPs and this lady, they see it, and immediately they snap to attention, and they salute this man. And it's quite powerful, because they treat him utterly differently than he Now, here's the thing. What do you believe God thinks about Jesus? What does the father think of the son? You know the the oceans he swam to rescue you. You know the depths to which he was willing to go to, to rescue you. You know the heights he was willing to climb to bring you out of darkness into the marvelous light of God. What do you think the father must think of the son? He must honor him beyond the skies, right? 
Philippians 2, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess him Lord. That's the honor that God has for the Son. Now, right here we go. That's how God looks at you. That's what justification means. Now, here's where I might get emotional for a minute. When you're involved in foster care, you're involved with people who don't have the kind of advantages in life that you have or that I have. And some of it is self-inflicted and some of it is a crappy system. Some of it is just living in a fallen world. But you come into contact with people who don't have the kind of advantages that you have. And for a period of time, you try to bring a bit of stability into their lives. And you start to see their lives begin to open up and flourish. One of the blessings of fostering, and this isn't a sales pitch, but it's a sales pitch, um, is that when you foster, you, you take this person who's maybe come from a bit of trauma or something like that, and they're like, a, they're like a bud of a flower that's all tightly wound up, and you get to have them in your care for a while. And just because you love them the way you would love your own kids, it's not rocket scientists, it's not hard. I mean, if I can do it, it cannot be hard. And, and you watch over time as this, this person starts to bud like a flower. And it's amazing. And you start teaching them the things that matter in life. You start teaching them about, about uh, being kind to others. And you start teaching them about learning self-discipline and self-control. And you start teaching them all those things that will make them a, a, a successful member of society later in life. And it's great. You raise them like you try to raise your own kids. But of course, sometimes... They leave and they go back to a situation that's not as good as the situation you're in. I'm not saying maybe there's going to be all kinds of problems and maybe uh, uh, the, the Children's Aid Society won't get involved the next time and, and, and these kids will grow up in circumstances that are very, very difficult. And sometimes those circumstances strongly contribute to a life of, of rebellion and a life of bad choices and a life of, of difficulty and a life that, that if you knew that person, you would look at them and you would just shake your head and say, oh man, all the terrible things you've done, all the terrible things you've done now. How does a person with all those disadvantages get into the kingdom of God? I'll tell you how they get into the kingdom of other religions. They find out what the rules are, and then they try really, really darn hard to practice them the best that they can. But what if they're developmentally delayed? What if their parents did drugs or drank a lot while they were in utero, and so their, their brains don't work the way they're supposed to, so to speak? What do you do then? Here's the gospel. All you got to do is believe. That's it. Anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. See, justification means it's not the smart who are in and the dumb are out, or the capable are in and the incapable are out or the successful are in and the failures are out. Justification means that the proud are out, but the humble, 
every single one of them. From every class, every race, every culture is in. That's what makes justification so incredibly beautiful. Last thing, quickly. The motivation of justification. Uh, remember we were talking about needing to believe we're good. <laughs> we, can't, we can't live without that kind of assurance that we're good. And so what do we do? We do things to make us feel like we're good. And that, that probably rings like there's dissonance in your ears. There's different motives. motives. But let's face it, it's very, very difficult to escape that. You watch the news when volunteerism goes up. What do they tell you? They tell you the incredible benefits to helping others. You feel better. Your health is better. You've got a spring in your step. You enjoy the holiday season that much more. Even evolutionary biologists will tell you that, that altruism, what we call altruism, which is doing good for others, is ultimately selfish. We do it as... Uh, a clan or as a group or whatever because it protects all of us better. So I might help one person in need individually and that may look like it's a selfless act, but really they're part of the tribe that I'm a part of, you know, can't Canadian citizen or something like that, and it's for the betterment of the tribe. That's what evolutionary biologists will tell you. So you can't escape this, sort of. But here in the gospel, you have a completely different motivation for doing good. You don't need to do good to make yourself feel good because you already know that you are loved. Whether you're good or not, you know that you are loved beyond your wildest dreams. And so you do good not to get something, but to give something. Here's a, a very rich aunt. And she's old and she's going to die soon. And she's got lots of nieces and nephews. And the nieces and nephews, they do so much good for their aunt. You know, they fetch the paper, they mow the lawn, they, yes, shovel snow. They do all this kind of good stuff for their aunt. Why are they doing this good stuff for this very, very rich aunt who's going to die pretty soon? How do you know what the motivation is? There's only one way, right? You go to the one, one kid and you say, listen to him. She goes to, so that's what she does. The aunt, she goes to one of the children and she says, listen, you get everything. It's all in the will. It's been sent off to the lawyers. It's been signed and notarized. It simply cannot be changed. You inherit it all. And then you stand back and you see, does she still water the plants? Does she still fetch the paper? Does she still say, Aunt Sophie, let's go for a walk? Because now what's the motivation? It's not to get anything from the aunt. You already got it. See, we're motivated by love. In the gospel, you're motivated by love. You don't, you don't do good because you're going to get further with God or further with anybody else. You do good simply out of a loving response to Him. That's what love does. His love for us first in justifying us motivates us to love others second. And don't you know that that's how it works? I know you know that's how it works. Look at... Look at that, you know, it's, I didn't go to all the quotes on the, front, on the cover, but uh, just one. You guys know Mumford and Sons? Some of you probably do. They got a song, Sigh No More. 
And in that song, they say this, love, it will not betray you, dismay or enslave you, it will set you free. Be more like the man you were made to be. That's what the love of justification, of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ does. It sets you free. Free from what? From living on the treadmill or in the hamster wheel of trying to do good to justify yourself. You're free from that. Free to serve. Let's pray. Father, thank you for thank you for the gospel. Thank you for how unbelievably liberating it is. Thank you that when we're justified, you change not just You're not changing us, you're changing your regard for us. And it's that change of regard for us that actually changes us. How strange and wonderful that is. Teach us to believe it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.